Hey, welcome back to the FDIC podcast, where we talk about our banks and your money. I'm Brian Sullivan at the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. In the next two episodes, we're going to go back in time to remember some of the recent and not so recent financial crises and how we came out of those and what it means for us today. Well, we can't talk about this history without going back to the Great Depression, before there was an FDIC, before people's bank deposits were insured, and before folks had the same level of confidence in their banks as they do today. Recall from your history class the run on the nation's banks and how President Franklin Roosevelt called a bank holiday in March of 1933. It needs no profit to tell you that when the people find that they can get their money, that they can get it when they want it for all legitimate purposes, the phantom of fear will soon be laid. People will again be glad to have their money where it will be safely taken care of and where they can use it conveniently at any time. I can assure you, my friends, that it is safer to keep your money in a reopened bank than it is to keep it under the mattress. You could reasonably say that in his more than 35 years at the FDIC, Art Merton has seen it all. He joined the agency back in 1986 as an economist, and over the years has had a front row seat for all the ups and downs in the banking and financial sectors. Today, Art Merton is the deputy to the FDIC chairman for financial stability, and he joins us. Art, welcome. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Art, let's start at the beginning, way back in the 30s, uh, nearly 90 years ago uh, during the Great Depression when the FDIC came into being. Yes. Following the stock market crash of 1929, in the next few years, over 9,000 banks failed in the U.S. Mm. And in fact, 4,000 banks failed in the few months before President Roosevelt took office. God, it, calamitous. It was. It was. And as, as you heard, the president declared a bank holiday um, to restore confidence in the banking system. And following that, um, Congress created the FDIC to provide federal deposit insurance. So what's the idea behind that? Just so, I mean, people kind of understand that their deposits are insured, but what's the foundation of that? Well, the idea is that if people know that their deposits are guaranteed and protected by the FDIC, they won't feel the need to run on the bank when there are concerns about uh, possible problems because they know that their money is safe. Mm -hmm. And that mitigates or prevents the runs on the banks that they had seen in the years prior to that. And to be clear, they don't pay the premiums on that insurance policy, right? No, no. The banks pay for deposit insurance. Um, and in fact, when the system was started uh, to set up a fund to protect the deposits, um, the FDIC borrowed money from both the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department and paid those loans back over the next 15 years. Oh, just to capitalize the exactly. insurance fund? A seed money for the fund, mm. exactly. I see. I'm also going to talk today not just about the FDIC, but also another agency that was created uh, in 1934 to ensure the deposits of what are called savings and loans. And um, it's probably worth distinguishing between what the FDIC uh, institutions, the FDIC insurers, commercial banks, uh, and what the Federal Savings and Loan Insurance Corporation, or FISLIC, FISLIC. insured. 
exactly. Savings and loans. Commercial banks were essentially depository institutions that took in checking accounts, offered checking accounts to, to their customers, and made loans to businesses. Uh, savings and loans um, were a place where people put their savings accounts, and the savings and loans took those funds and lent them out in the form of mortgages to homeowners for people to buy their houses. Um, so there were two systems of federal deposit insurance uh, created in the early 30s. And, and I should just note that several decades later, a third deposit insurance system was established for uh, to insure the deposits of credit unions. Mm -hmm. The National Credit Union Administration. Correct. Well, we talk about the FDIC today. We don't mm -hmm. talk about FISLIC. No. What happened there? Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> Okay, so here we are. We finally have a national system of deposit insurance, whether in a commercial bank or in these savings and loans. Mm -hmm. That had to stabilize. It did. It did stabilize the situation. But along with creating those agencies, there were also some limits placed on risk-taking because deposit insurance was actually controversial. A number of people thought it was a bad idea, including most of the bankers at the time, who felt that it would lead to excessive risk-taking because if the depositors were protected, they wouldn't care whether their banks were safe or not and how the bankers lent their money, and so it might create more risk in the system. So there were some measures put on uh, to try to control that risk. Mm-hmm. So I gather for a period of time, everything was okay? It was. It was, really, for the next few decades. Um, but it's probably worth mentioning that um, some of those controls on, on the risk-taking were things like caps on the rates that banks could pay for deposits. So there was a limit on how much banks could pay depositors. Um, In interest. Exactly. So, for example, on your checking account, they could pay no interest. Um, and on savings accounts, it was limited. There was a cap on it. Now, why would the government care how much interest banks pay their customers? You would think that that's a market decision. Exactly. But the concern was that if banks could compete with one another by paying higher rates to attract deposits, they would then have to lend that money out at higher rates, presumably for riskier loans, and that risk would build up in the system and you'd have problems again. Is that why we don't get very much interest on our deposit accounts today? Uh, that's probably a different story and one that <laughs> might take a little more time. <laughs> okay. Well, so in controlling the interest that banks could charge or, or, or pay, rather, to their depositors, was there any concern that, that there was not enough or too much competition in the banking space? Right. At that time, there was concern that there had been too much competition. Some people referred to it as ruinous competition. So there, the idea was perhaps to limit the ways in which banks could compete, not just through deposit rates, but also geographic restrictions on how many banks could be in a given geographic location, how many branches they could have. Hmm. And the idea was to limit competition so that you wouldn't get the, uh, again, the risk-taking. So there was a time in this country's history where you could be a bank in Texas, but that bank couldn't also be a bank in Pennsylvania. That's correct. That's correct. And these days, you can be a bank anywhere. That's right. So as you mentioned, market forces um, uh, developed that you know led to uh, uh, broader and broader geographic uh, expansion. Well, did, well... Did any of these caps on interest or geographic restrictions end up 
harming the system in the end? Well, I don't know if it harmed it, but I, I might mention just how banks adapted to that. Mm-hmm. So they could not compete with one another through deposit rates, obviously. But what they tried to do was compete in other ways. So they might offer a l- better loan rate if you had deposits at the bank. Or banks often put in more branches to make it more convenient for their depositors. Because remember, this was before ATM. So the way people got their money was by going to the branch yeah, of the branch bank. branch locations, right. Um, and also the banks competed by uh, providing essentially gifts uh, for placing deposits. Um, the classic example of that is uh, toasters. <laughs> when you open a deposit account, you would get a toaster. Um, <laughs> Um, And, you know, in terms of restrictions or branching, um, there was a period in the 60s and 70s when the regulators, including the FDIC board, had to approve new establishment of new branches. And so the concern was you didn't want to have too many in one area. And so the staff would have to recommend to the board whether to approve. And an obvious way to analyze that would be to look at how far apart these two locations were. And um, But there are other considerations, such as how easy it is to get from one place to another. Are there hills? Are there rivers, valleys, et cetera? So at that time, the staff of the FDIC, when it presented the uh, case to the board for approval, it used um, paper mache models uh, of the topography to, to allow the board to help make that decision. To illustrate whether or not there was too much concentration or not enough or, or how difficult it was to cross a creek to get to the bank. Exactly. That, I mean, that's essentially what passed for um, data visualization in those days. Well, you know, it sounds so anachronistic that you'd be using paper mache models or models of any kind to define where one bank branch is versus another bank branch. At some point in time, though, the federal government seemed to relax its restrictions on competition. Uh, what happened? Well, I think um, market forces uh, forced some changes. Uh, and so, for example, uh, you know, as interest rates rose in the late 60s and early 70s, um, people wanted a return on their deposits, a uh, better return on their deposits. And so um, within the banking industry, uh, the uh, now account was created uh, that essentially acted like a uh, checking account but paid a uh, rate of interest. Um, that was created by a small savings bank in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, and then outside the uh, banking industry, the uh, money market mutual funds arose, and they offered a product that acted pretty much like a checking account but also paid a rate of interest. Um, now, they were not did not have federal deposit insurance, but they were safe because they invested in in safe instruments like treasuries. And money market funds, mutual funds, became quite popular. And uh, there was a concern that they could draw funds away from the banks and commercial banks and savings and loans. Right. Well, they weren't insured, but they sure acted like a checking account in most every other respect, right? That's right. That's right. So that led to some pressure to ease some of the restrictions on banks. And of course, money market mutual funds became very popular. And, uh, you know, we, they had, they experienced problems in, uh, in 2008 and, uh, and, and again, last year. Yeah, well, we'll get to that, right? But again, they were not insured. That's correct. 
Okay, so are you know after the creation of the FDIC and FISLIC for the savings and loans out there, there's this period of calm and stability in the banking sector. Very few bank failures. Uh, everything's going pretty good, right? Were there any signs of trouble during this period of time? Well, not yet, but there were some who had concerns about that stability. And in fact, in, in 1963, at the dedication of the FDIC's new headquarters at the time, uh, two blocks west of the White House, the chairman of the House Banking Committee gave the keynote speech. And in that speech, and I will quote from it, he said, I think we should have more bank failures. The record of the last several years of almost no bank failures and finally, last year, no bank failure at all, is to me a danger signal that we have gone too far in the direction of bank safety. Well, pardon me for, you know, thinking that that's nonsense. Uh, am I wrong here? You're the economist here. Tell me, is are bank failures, can they be sometimes a good thing? I don't... I think his concern was that the rules were too restrictive and that they impeded the ability of banks to serve their communities and support the economy, and that you know, it may be a limit on economic growth. Mm. So well, I guess coming out of something like the Great Depression and all these controls that are put on the bank, controls like how much interest they can pay their depositors and where they can operate, uh, thought to be too restrictive and maybe we needed a little thinning of the herd, or so to speak? <laughs> yes. Well. It, yes. And, you know, after that, after the early 60s and going into the late 60s and early 70s, the economy changed or experienced um, inflation and, yeah. and higher interest rates. Um, if people remember, there was high rates of inflation in, in the 1970s. And that put pressure on the economy and on the financial system and the banking system. Um, and something needed to be done to address uh, the high rates of inflation. Hmm. And if you'll recall, um, in 1979, Paul Volcker became the chairman of the Federal Reserve, and his main initiative was to try to combat inflation by raising interest rates uh, to, to calm down the economy to, in order to bring inflation and the expectations of inflation under control. Yeah. Well, I guess few people these days know what inflation is uh, or uh, high interest rates either, no, yeah. right? So we've been operating under low inflation, low interest rates for so long. Yeah. To give you an example, my first job out of college, I received and my colleagues received two cost of living adjustments per year, and they were not insignificant. Hmm. Goodness gracious. Well, so in the 50 years or so after uh, the Great Depression, Again, still a period of relative calm and stability, but then, you know, we go into the 1980s and something happened. What That's happened? Right. That's right. Well, as I said, the high interest rates and the reaction uh, to that created severe problems for uh, certainly the savings and loan industry um, and, and eventually problems for the commercial banking industry as well. And, you know, I might quote from the chairman of the FDIC in 1983, the FDIC put out a study that was called the first 50 years. It documented the first 50 years of the FDIC. And in the introduction to that, the chairman of the FDIC said, quote, 
we hope the need for deposit insurance will never again be as great as it was in the 1930s. Nevertheless, as the FDIC embarks on its second half century, the challenges at ha hand are greater than at any time in the past four decades. Mm, ominous sounding. It was, and so perhaps maybe I can talk about the what happened to the savings yeah, and loan Yeah, well, industry. the SNL crisis, you know, just blew up and, and, and um, people were harmed. That, that's right. So if you think about what a savings and loan balance sheet looked like back then, they made essentially 30-year mortgages. They loaned money out at 30, for 30 years at fixed rates, um, and they took in deposits. Um, but as I said, interest rates were rising. The cost of their deposits the, and the means of attracting funds was going up. So what happened was they were paying more to attract deposits than they were earning on the loans. Yeah, it just doesn't work out. Right, they were upside down as people refer to it. So that created huge losses in the savings and loan industry. And I think it's fair to say that people would agree that the policy response to that was in some ways misguided. So the idea, some of the measures were to um, allow the, try to give the savings and loans expanded powers to get into types of lending that they had no experience in, in order to help grow out of their problems. Mm -hmm. That was one of the ideas. They changed accounting rules so that the losses that were on the books were not apparent through the accounting that they were allowed to uh, employ. And then in terms of capital, the buffer that absorbs losses for banks and, and savings and loans, they were allowed to use capital, capital instruments that really were not available to absorb losses. So it, in a sense, it was a way of delaying the recognition of these losses mm. and it allowed the losses to grow over the years. So they just kept digging the hole deeper and right. then they started going out of business in droves, right? What happened to the insurance fund that was set up to protect people who put their money into the savings and loans? That's right. Good question. The, so at first, um, they, they raised the premiums that savings and loans paid, but they, the industry was too weak to fully bear the cost of that. They tried some stopgap measures, such as issuing bonds, 40-year bonds, borrowing money in the market to, to shore up the fizzle. Stealing from Peter to pay Paul, it sounds like. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Um, and then finally, uh, it was recognized that something had to be done, um, something more meaningful. And so when, in 1988, when the first President Bush took office, one of his uh, first announcements was that they were going to address the savings and loan problem. And uh, they started looking for solutions. And, you know, of course, an obvious question is, how are you going to pay for those losses? And at the time, there was a senior White House official who floated an idea for paying for them, and he suggested that there be, essentially, you levy a, a, a premium on depositors um, uh, to, to bring in funds to pay for it. And the chairman of the FDIC at the time, Bill Seidman, uh, didn't think that was a, a, a good idea. He was and a it, salty character, wasn't he? He was, and in fact, he referred to that plan uh, publicly as the reverse toaster plan. <laughs> so, uh, of course, this uh, White House official wasn't very happy about that, and uh, he uh, spent the next uh, few years trying to encourage uh, Chairman Seidman to leave office uh, early before his term was up. And 
um, it, it turns out that um, Chairman Seidman had a ranch in Arizona, and he liked to go out there and ride his horses. And, and one time uh, he was riding, and he had a horrible accident. He was thrown from his horse. Mm. He lost uh, a great deal of blood. His life was in jeopardy. And the, the story is, and it may be apocryphal, is that when he woke up in the hospital, the first thing he said was, tell so-and-so I'm not leaving. Oh, my goodness. Well, um, the savings and loan crisis ultimately had to be resolved by the creation of the Resolution Trust Corporation. They came in to clean up the mess. That's right. The Congress in 1989 passed what is known as FIREA. I won't go, go into the acronym, but it essentially abolished FISLIC. It made the taxpayers pay for the losses. So the taxpayers had to pony up mm -hmm. over $100 billion, and it created what you referred to the Resolution Trust Corporation, which was an agency, a temporary agency, set up to uh, handle hundreds and hundreds of failed savings and loans, and then once it was finished with that, go out of business. At this point, we're going to bring this conversation to a close uh, and continue our walking down memory lane with Art Merton in our second in a two-part series of podcast on the history of recovery. Art, thank you so much for joining us for part one. You're welcome, Brian. It was my pleasure.